You're listening to In the Belly of the Beast. My name is Ryan Sigelko, and I teach in the Theology Department and American Culture and Difference, and I'm also the Director of Initiatives in Faith and Praxis. I'm joined with some of my friends. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African-American literature and expressive culture, folklore, and cultural studies in the English Department, and I also teach in American Culture and Difference as well. Hi, I'm Kanishka Chowdhury. I teach in the English Department, and I'm the Director of the American Culture and Difference Program, and as always, I'm very happy to be here. I'm Amy Finnegan, and I'm a sociologist. I teach in Justice and Peace Studies, and I'm affiliated with American Culture and Difference. It's great to be back, hanging out with y'all. I think for this episode, we're going to focus on Kanishka's work, actually. And, you know, we're trying to get our groove a bit here in the podcast studio, in the podcast room, trying to develop our chemistry a bit, you know. It's true. Have you seen that show, Friends? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. You're not going to talk about Friends, are we? (laughs) You know, you watch the early episodes and you have like Rachel and Ross and who are the other people? Phoebe. Chandler. Monica. Monica. And uh, Gunter. Don't forget Gunter. Who's Gunter? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a character Tom made up. He was like a friend of Pookie's. I love watching those early episodes, though, you know, and you start to see how awkward they are. And they're like, that's not even like what Ross is like. And then, you know, after a bit, four or five episodes in, it's like, OK, now we see, you know, they start to figure it out. They start to figure out their chemistry. So I feel like that's kind of what we're doing in this podcast, you know? Yes. I think so. I think we have a chemistry when we don't have big microphones in front of our face. I think that's a good point. I think that's part of it. There's been many times where we're sitting around, we're like, damn, we should have the recorder on. This is just happening. But then you swear. You say, damn. That's okay. They're swearing on the show. I think one thing, one thing needs to be met, said about Friends, and that is <laughs> that it's not a comedy. It's a mystery show. <laughs> is that right? It, it remains an eternal mystery to me how six people can live on Manhattan by doing nothing. <laughs> so. Oh, wait, doesn't, doesn't Phoebe work at the restaurant? Oh, yeah. That, the cafe. Is this really going there? This is too much Rachel? friends. I have to, executive decision. Okay, move let's on. move on. We, we okay. can't talk about friends anymore, okay. guys. Okay, We're back. <laughs> so, on that, so the last episode, you know, we had this great interview. Thank you, Amy, so much for doing that interview with Don Goodwin. And uh, the, the episode before, you spoke a bit about your essay, your article you wrote for BinPost on the pipeline, the Line 3 pipeline. And so we're moving now to, to talk about Kanishka's work. And Kanishka, I actually just finished your book that you published. Is this, let's see, 2018, 2019? 2019, yeah. 2019. It's a book called Human Rights Discourse in the Post-9-11 Age. It's really a wonderful book. I would encourage folks to, to check it out. But today, I think we're going to focus more on your more recent work that you're working on right now, this semester, on migration. But before we talk about that, I wonder if you could share a bit about how the new work, the new research you're working on, how that fits into sort of your broader intellectual life and, and how you were led to that. Is there a connection at all with the human rights research that you were doing before this? And just kind of share a bit about your, your work. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for the generous words about my book. Um, yes, uh, the final chapter of that book uh, dealt with migration and migration in the context of human rights. And, and certainly given that over 80 million people are displaced on, on the planet today, and those are very conservative numbers. And these are people without access to any forms of rights. Um, so I was kind of going in that direction uh, by the time I got to the end of that book. And 
it seems to me quite appropriate now to really think about uh, how migration is a problem to do with not just human rights, but many, many other things that, that are connected to it. And the more I started thinking about rights, I started thinking about borders, which are primarily one way in which we access rights, right? In the sense that citizenship gives us certain rights, as Hannah Arendt pointed out um, many decades ago. So what I kept sort of discovering is that when we talk about migration, when we talk about borders, it's impossible not to talk about a whole host of other things, right? Mm. In the sense, economic justice, uh, racial justice, gender justice, climate change, labor. So many things are dependent on the fact that we live in a world that consists of nation states and that these nation states make certain laws about who can come in and, and certainly even who can leave. But so much of human misery, I think at the moment, is connected to the fact that we are kind of put into these boxes of nations. Um, and of course, uh, the irony is that it is only a borderless world for a capital and for currency and for goods, which can move freely across the world, as can certain extremely wealthy people. But for a majority of the world's population, uh, they are unable to move, even though, you know, they are, according to the UN Human Rights Charter, they are, everyone is free to leave and go elsewhere if they want to. The only problem is if other people don't let them in, that right doesn't mean anything, right? So, uh, you know, I don't want to go on too much about this, but I think basically it's not too much of a stretch to go from thinking through human rights and its limitations to thinking about one kind of both uh, political and a, and a ideological construct, in this case borders, how that limits our access to rights, right? So I've been reading a lot about abolition. I've been reading a lot about what a future society can look like if we get rid of um, some of these strictures that are sort of imprisoning us. And I think the nation state is perhaps one of the chief uh, forms of oppression of people. And so I really want to think about what the border does to us. So I'm, I'm really looking at the border as a social relation, as a relation that reproduces certain antagonisms, reproduces class society, reproduces uh, racial injustice, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of where I'm headed. Um, in the last chapter of the book, I focused on two narratives. One was The Beast by Oscar Martinez, uh, which was about the journey of Central American migrants through Mexico. Um, and the other was uh, a documentary, Fire on the Sea, which was about the Mediterranean journey uh, from North Africa to Italy, uh, Lampedusa in this case. And what I saw there was, again, this completely unnecessary suffering and death, which was caused by purely a human construction, and that is borders. And a human construction devised to privatize and, and limit wealth, a device to keep people out, a device to have people, you know, not have the access to freedom and liberation. And I thought, well, this is this has got to be something that we have to seriously address if you're talking about real transformation. Because um, what would it mean to live in a borderless world? Is that too fanciful? Is that, is that something beyond our capacity to imagine? 
what would the horizon of possibility be if if we thought about a world with no borders so clearly this is a subject that will bring strong feelings from a lot of people because they would say that's impossible that's that's how would we live in a world without borders and i guess the thing to keep in mind is that real nation state borders are a fairly recent invention if you go back to the treaty of westphalia in, in europe really comes fairly recently in, in in human history and it's something that not coincidentally rises with the end of feudalism and the beginning of capitalism and the conquest of the americas so there's a reason that the nation state sort of comes into being unfortunately now we think there is no other way to live in the world and and i think i'd, I'd say that we can destroy what we have created and hopefully uh, look for a no borders future so i don't know if that responded to your question but i certainly said a lot yeah yeah that's th- thank you for that that's that's fascinating you know i think about when i think about human rights i think about united nations and the declaration of human rights right from what is that 1948 right and when i think about human rights it seems to me and in the united nations i mean isn't that supposed to be isn't the united nations supposed to be a place where people living within nation states can make some kind of appeal to some kind of global body or so i'm wondering you know cuz human rights seem to transcend national boundaries but in your book you know you are challenging the efficacy or the the ability the capacity of human rights discourse to deliver on securing human rights um i don't know if is that is that a could you say more about your argument there yeah i mean i think i think one of the things i tried to do right away in the book is to historicize human rights language right so it comes about at about the same time at the beginning of the cold war right after 1945 and and from the very beginning human rights discourse has been embedded in cold war discourse so a lot of the rights then became about individuals and civil liberties and things like that and the issues to do with labor exploitation and things like that sort of took a back seat and and i think rights discourse was hopelessly compromised as a result i mean i give the example in my book that in 1948 we have apartheid in south africa we have the partition of the indian subcontinent we have the expulsion of the palestinian people and none of this comes up when these articles are being formulated of course the supreme irony is that the people in charge are the ones who are the colonial powers britain goes back you know has colonies in east africa west africa in in southeast asia france has north africa the caribbean the us of course and these are the people who are deciding on human rights so national self determination of course becomes something that becomes important at that point so you can see why the nation state for people fighting for decolonization was an important task on the agenda right because they are fighting the imperial powers but i want to also suggest that there was always an alternative intellectual movement and that comes out of pan africanism that comes out of the third international that comes out of du bois and the whole of the tradition uh cla james uh, george padmore uh, who thought of decolonization in a much more global sense 
that they did not just think of it as independence of a nation. You know, this is why Fano is so important, right? I mean, he warned us what would happen if he just went into that kind of nationalism. So even though there is an important historical reason for people who were colonized to think of nationalism as an important political strategy, it still is. You can think of Palestine, right? What happened is that the nation state, in a sense, reproduced a lot of the colonial relations, right? Even today, we have laws in the books of many colonized countries that are now post-colonial and independent that are remnants of colonialism. In fact, a lot of countries treat their indigenous people and criminalize them based on colonial laws, even though they are quote-unquote free nations. So there was another tradition uh, of rights, and that tradition of rights was subsumed and suppressed by this kind of mainstream idea of what rights were. And I guess that's what I try to deal with in my book is sort of say that, okay, does human rights in the way it's seen doesn't necessarily take us where we want to go. In fact, if anything, it forestalls it. In many ways, the kind of discussions we have today about anti-racism, I, I, I find a lot of affinity with the problems that I identified with my book with, with what's going on with anti-racism today in a way that it's been mainstreamed and, and, and become part of a kind of process of sanitization of oppression. So I guess what I'd say is that I'm trying to find alternative ways to think about liberation that is not within a kind of discourse that, that is already depoliticized and sanitized. Can I ask a question? Yes. I know we're going to move in to talk about borders, but I, so when I think about human rights, we know the declaration came in 1948 and then there were these covenants, right? The civil and political and mm-hmm. then the social and economic. Mm-hmm. And I think as I've, as I've learned, like the social and economic rights were really lifted by the socialist bloc and by right. connections to the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. Um, but yet I think you're right. Human rights discourse globally, especially, I mean, like all the big human rights organizations, I'm putting quotes, air quotes, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, these are groups that are located in the West, in the, the right. global North. And that discourse has been what has, has been prominent. And my question to you is, is that because like the power of capital, like the capital existed in those countries? Because that's when we can see like the World Bank and the IMF and those institutions also gave rise around that time. Those are right. all former colonial powers who were forming those institutions and they had the, the money. Is that, is that why it happened, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, there's a connection, right? I mean, just like the Marshall Plan is responsible for a certain kind of post-European landscape, um, not just through business, but through culture as well. I mean, it's well known that the Marshall Plan, part of the Marshall Plan insistence was on f- countries like France and Germany sort of bringing in American culture, right? So it wasn't just a political program, it was an ideological program. And likewise with with human rights, I mean, it's not just a political program, it's an ideological program. So those who were quote-unquote persecuted by the uh, socialist bloc states always got prominence, you know, prisoners of conscience, you know, Solzhenitsyn, people like that. They were the ones who were held up as being kind of embodiments of private individual rights, whereas uh, the kind of political rights to do with um, 
labor and all of that stuff was put on the back burner. So yeah, very much, I think, as you correctly point out, the economic infrastructure, I think, determined Mm -hmm. what kind of rights came to the fore. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, speaking up for someone who's being persecuted for being unable to express herself does not form a danger to capital, right? I mean, in the sense that sort of um, is an advertisement for freedom and democracy. So, of course, those were the ones that were upheld as being important. Yeah, you talk about, you know, the way that this discourse is gendered and how there's the, the image of the, the third world woman, right, mm-hmm. that becomes kind of the center of human rights discourse and making this is sort of an appeal, right, for charity or for some kind of recognition of, of violence done to women. And I mean, to make this a bit more concrete, I'm, I'm looking at your book right now, and I, I just wanted to mention this one example that you give of this, um, this horrific accident or collapse, really, of a building in 2013, in April 2013, in uh, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, where over 1,135 workers were killed in this collapse. And the workers in the building, you say, were, were sewing garments for Western firms, such as Benetton, Mango, Primark, and Walmart, for stores like Abercrombie & Fitch and The Gap and, and, and other familiar brands. And they were sewing these garments for about $38 a month. According to the reports immediately following the incident, you say more than 3.5 million people worked in the country's estimated 4,000 factories, generating about 80% of Bangladesh's total exports. And then you go on to talk about how when the building came down, it was followed by, you know, hand-wringing and scapegoating. You know, most of the remedies, you say, focused on enacting stricter safety regulations on the garment industry, while labor activists called for higher wages better working conditions for the workers, but it didn't really address some of these central issues, even though, well, at the same time, it was kind of publicized as if a human rights violation was being recognized, that this was kind of how it was put in the press, right? So I guess I would like you to kind of, I don't know, if you could share a bit about that example in particular, how that sort of shows the contradictions and the antagonism sort of built into human rights discourse. Right. I mean, just very recently, two months ago, during the recapture of uh, Kabul by, by the Taliban, so much of the discourse in the American media was about, oh, what is going to ha- what's going to happen to Afghan women? As if, the, you know, this has always been a, a huge concern of the captains of industry about what's going to happen to Afghan women. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there are particularly appropriate subjects of rights, Right. And the third world woman is such a subject. Now, that only extends insofar as her oppressor is something other than Western capital. If her oppressor is another brown male, then so much the better. If it's a fundamentalist religion that is not Christianity, so much the better. However, the reality is that most of the time, whether it's access to resources, education, mobility, whatever, it is because so many of these countries are in a situation of structural debt to Western economies uh, where they have been forced to uh, cut back on social spending, on education programs, on health programs. Uh, There's a reason women and girls have to share such a huge burden of the labor. And of course, no one steps back and says, okay, maybe we should 
talk about that, right? Why do so many young girls die at childbirth? Why are so many people not getting access to education? But instead, it's much easier to talk about a bogeyman, you know, wearing with a big beard who is going to shut down schools because of course we are excluded from that bogeyman. So, yeah, I mean rights again becomes this kind of selective way in which we talk about oppression and it allows us a, a free pass to sort of not implicate ourselves as Amy said in the previous episode how we are all within the system that we benefit from. So I think that's where the big gap is in rights discourse that it creates and exploits particular subjects for particular reasons and it doesn't really look into where the sources of these oppressions are it abstracts right these figures from exactly from larger structures and geopolitical yeah dynamics and i think that's the, that's our work as critics right i mean all of us in this room i mean what we try to do in our work is to demystify this kind of system that makes all of this seem natural right. and inevitable right part of what we do with with our students with our work with our writing is to say this is not a rational way to live and the fact that we have been taught that this is the only way to live that a profit economy that a economy based on antagonistic class relations this is just how life is has to be demystified right I mean, this is where the root of cultural critical work is, is we have to expose it for what it is. And, and I, I hope in, in a very small way, my book, my work, my teaching can contribute to that. And you say that the border really isn't just about a place, right? But so it's, this is connected, I think, is the border is about the movement of capital, the stopping of capital, the stopping of people. Right. It's about freedom in some ways, it's, but it's, it's about capture and smothering out in other ways. Right. Could you say more about that? Yeah. Because when I think of the border, I do tend to think of the border between the U.S. and Mexico or the the physical borders, the geographical borders. Territorial lines. Territorial lines. How is it not a territorial line? It It is that and much more, right? I mean, on a very sort of basic level, the fact that ICE can go into any place in this country and raid it and quote unquote, you know, take away people, separate them from their families means that the border lives with you wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're not in that geographical space. Of course, it is much more real uh, in some ways uh, for, you know, recently the Haitian migrants at the Texas border or, you know, anyone trying to cross the desert. I'm not minimizing the fact that it is a real place and it has real consequences. But I do think that in terms of a structural relationship in how we are positioned uh, vis-a-vis systems of power, it moves with us, you know, it moves in the sense we have bordered relationships everywhere in terms of structurally unequal ones. And I know some of you are interested in, in the idea of what a borderless world would look like. And I think that's exactly the point. It's a borderless world is not just about getting rid of physical borders. It's about living in a society in which we are not separated by wealth, by these distinctions that put us in, in particular ways that make us labor in certain ways. Uh, from birth to death, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's definitely a social relation. It's not just a place. Uh, and I, you know, if I had more time, I would go more into depth about this. But, but I'll just leave it at that. Can I just, I mean, I have like a hundred questions now because I mean, you guys, have, this has been like fire. 
It struck me just now, um, you know, we talk about uh, decolonizing the mind. Are, are you sort of suggesting that we would need to like deborder our minds, like that the border actually is in our minds in so many ways, as opposed to being just a physical place or a line on a map that we need to deborder our minds? Absolutely. I, th- I think so. I mean, I, I, I think that if you think of it this way, that citizenship not just gives us rights, but it also makes us think about ourselves as particular kinds of subjects, right? You think of yourself as an American, as a German, as an Argentinian. These are sort of vital identity markers, right? I mean, you and I love watching football, soccer for Americans, and we know that how much people identify with those kinds of national markers. They're very real. It's not a mystical um, identity in the sense that real people feel real affinity, to national cultures, whether it's in the form of sports, music, film, whatever. So I'm not minimizing the fact that these things exist, but along with that sort of what seems on the surface, innocent forms of identifications also comes exclusion, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense, it's impossible then not to exclude those you think do not belong in that national imaginary, right? And going back again to, to football, who is, you know, when the French won with predominantly black players, you know, suddenly France looked at itself and said, oh, hang on a second. Uh, what does this mean, you know, in, in terms of being French? And so nationalism only, I mean, I, I think it can be a, a force of liberation when an entire group of people are subjugated, you know, in a particular way. It has certainly historically had a lot of liberating potential. You think about Vietnam, you think about Cuba, you think about, um, you know, Algeria. Many, many examples where uh, a national identification has helped in the fight for liberation. But all too often, you know, again, that is followed by a sort of a reassertion of certain kinds of imaginaries, which, which are exclusionary, right? And I think that's why it constantly has to be reinvented. And at the moment, it is not just the West who is using uh, draconian border policies to keep people apart. It's happening everywhere, right? It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in uh, Turkey, China, India, everywhere. So I think we are part of the problem because we internalize those identities and therefore it is as necessary to free ourselves of that kind of thinking, as you're saying, in order for this world to come to be. And that's a challenge. I mean, I'm not suggesting by any means this is going to be easy uh, because it's a very important part of one's identity. But there's a reason Donald Trump, the first thing he said in his, when he announced his presidency was his immigration policy. He knows that this kind of nativism works. At some level, this matters. And so it is easy to exploit it. And, and therefore, this is why it's important for us to fight against it. Why does it work so well? I mean, is it that the, you know, the border sort of shows us this thing that we can put around ourselves, this thing that we have that we can deny to other people? Because I don't know, like this is going to sound a little bit mixed up, but I was thinking um, when Rai asked you about, you know, sort of the third world woman as a sort of ideal subject, uh, human rights discourse. And then it struck me like, that's exactly the person that we would keep out of this country, right? Like that we would try to not allow to cross this border, right? And um, so at the same time that we use, you know, human rights discourse to construct 
others in a particular way and then also ourselves at the same time, we then would sort of easily switch the, uh, flip the switch in order to see that person in a different way all the time, sort of making ourselves innocent in this sort of process by which they are being um, either, you know, sort of lionized or lifted up or um, excluded. So, I mean, I guess, actually, I'll just stop there and see <laughs> how you respond to that. Well, I would say that that, that is exactly one of the contradictions. You know, I, I would talk about that in the sense that you're right, that when does the subject who is this ideal subject of rights also become a threat? I mean, in a sense, what is, what is the way in which we reconcile those antagonisms? And, and my answer is we don't that this is precisely what Borders does, is that it highlights these antagonisms. You know, what is the sense that somebody on one side of the border, you look at the U.S.-Mexico border, makes these pitiable wages, and on the other side of the border makes much better wages, doing probably the same thing. Uh, what is the logic of that? <laughs> um, well, there is a logic, and, and there's, a, there's a logic of capital, right? But at the same time, it's contradictory. And that's where I think I see some hope in the sense that if these contradictions finally get to the point where they are no longer resolvable, then another world has to be possible. And, you know, and, and we see it in many, many groups already. There are many groups who, who work across borders. In fact, a lot of unions are now much more inclined to include immigrants in their union activity because they see that it makes them stronger. Uh, there's there's cross-border organizations. You know, we are linked in some very, very basic ways. And though it may be banal to sort of say this, I think climate change is the obvious glue here in the sense that a flood's going to go wherever, you know, in terms, it's not going to stop at the border, you know, it's, it's going to continue on to where it's supposed to go. Same thing with the fire, same thing with earthquakes, um, you know, and, and any kind of disaster that, awaits us. So many, many problems only have transnational solutions, right? I mean, in a sense, that in itself should make people understand that this is not, this kind of world in which we live uh, is, is no longer sustainable. Does it make it sort of even more absurd that, you know, all these uh, world leaders are over in Scotland sort of like negotiating between nations for some kind of, like I've, you know, yesterday the, the announcement that uh, China and the United States have joined together. And it's like, what, what, so what? I mean, you know, the, the, everything that's happening over there is sort of denial of a, I mean, even though people are arguing or are saying this is, and it's usually the global South that's saying this, right? Like this affects the entire globe, right? They're the ones that are really pointing out that you guys have done the polluting and we are, you know, suffering the, the results of that, right? And that we need to do something together. And then at the same time, these sort of solutions are being objected to because of what it would do to our country or our economy or our jobs, et cetera, as if that is, you know, something that can be kept separate from what's happening to the whole world, right? Yeah, I was actually just looking at the, um, the graph in the, in the Times today, and it says that 23 rich developed countries are responsible for half of the historical emissions. And 25% from the U.S. itself, which has 4% of the world's population. Wow. So this is why nation states exist, right? I mean, in a sense, if the United States had a truly global partnership, would this be at all possible that one country would be responsible for a quarter of the emissions in this world? 
even though it has 4% of the world's population. This is why we keep borders, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful thing. I mean, borders around questions of identity. It made me think of my nine-year-old who came back uh, from school the other day with this sheet of paper. And it was like, there was this space in this on the sheet of paper that said, you know, put down the flag from uh, where your family is from. And I was like, what's that? I'm like, I don't know if I... I don't know if I want you to do this project. <laughs> I was like, how can we do this differently? How can we think about this? And she was like, well, what's wrong with flags? I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with flags as such, depending on what's on them. But this question of, you know, where is your family from? Do we have to identify that with a nation state? So what I had her do was, you know, I, like we drew like a globe together and we talked about, you know, like the history of migration in her family you know, her mother's side is from the Netherlands and my side is from various parts of Europe. And so we, we talked about that, you know, and on the globe. And then for the place where the flag was, she just put a dove and mm. said, you know, we pray for peace. You know, it's the Mennonite symbol that, that our kids have grown up in. Apparently when she told her teacher about this, like, <laughs> she's like, wait, why does your dad have a problem with flags? <laughs> Um, Rise Sickle Co. <laughs> teacher's favorite parent. Yeah, I mean, and I, but it really got me thinking about this a bit, you know, because because that's so deep, you know, the idea of nation states are is so deep within us and how we identify in that way, and I guess it it raises the question to the question of identity and the question for me of uh, how race and racialization how that is produced identities national identities are connected in some way with the production of race. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about the connection between, how you understand the connection between uh, the production of race and racialization and the nation. Are they separable? I mean, we see this with, you know, Trump's, it became very clear, right, with Trump, uh, his policies early on, right, that, that the racism, the way that that was kind of functionally articulated was to say, we need bans on immigration. So it was a, you know, race and nation are, are intimately connected. Your race and the border are intimately connected. I just wonder if you could speak a bit to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it goes without saying. And remember what happened before, uh, you know, he brought up immigration is it became notorious for the birther movement, right? In the sense that Obama right. from the very beginning had to prove that he belonged here. Uh, something that no uh, white presidential candidate has ever had to do even though, ironically, John McCain was born in, in Panama, which technically was uh, not U.S. soil, he never had to prove his, his citizenship. But don't want to go down that road. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, a nation, state, and, and the production of race are incredibly linked, and, and none more so in white settler colonies for obvious reasons. There's a really interesting movement in Canada uh, which talks about indigenous rights, and they say nobody is illegal. The only thing that's illegal is Canada. Canada is illegal in the sense that this is territory that's been occupied and conquered without the consent of the people. So, I, yeah, there's no way you can separate the way the racial imagination is tied up with how we envision what, quote-unquote, a people are. I mean, even this concept of a people, uh, Nandita Sharma, who's, who's at the University of Hawaii, in fact, has this whole thing where she talks about where did this idea of 
a people, even even people who are oppressed, the, right. ro- the Rohingya people, where did this stuff come from? What does that mean? And why do we deploy such terms? And, and I think that's an interesting, interesting question. Yeah, the linking of a people to a particular place. Right. right and then calling that a national body, that, right. that these people belong in this particular place. And it inevitably leads to questions about ethnicity and, and race and all of these things that are produced. Again, think of the Chinese Exclusion Act in this country, right, which was basically then excluded any non-Europeans from coming to this country for a very, very long time. Immigration policy in this country has always been tied to race. You know, the, the notion of an alien, you know, after, after all, is, is racialized from the very beginning. So yeah, I, th- I think that whether you look at Australia or Canada or the United States, but particularly in white settler colonies, I think, uh, and I would always be careful when we say settler colony to always say white settler colony, because just because you've settled somewhere doesn't make you a colonizer. I think white settler colonies are very different from, say, indentured servants settling in, in Trinidad from South Asia. Right. They are not settlers in the same way. So I think we need to make that distinction uh, as, as far as uh, race goes as well. Yeah, part of the distinction between what is movement as colonialism and settler colonialism versus movement as, right, movement as, as, as migration or, how, you know, how do we think through those terms? I mean, those are already freighted, I suppose, but... People have always moved. People have always moved. What are the forms of movement that are violent? Right. I guess, an extractive and that deal in death versus the kind of movement that is for life. Exactly. I just want to say like that uh, question about the people, you know, and the connection to land, because in my work, that's something that a lot of people are thinking about. And I'm thinking about myself in terms of the importance of land for groups of people. And I guess I'm wondering if it seems to me that a lot of those sort of claims to a kind of groupness or a sort of nation state without a place are responding to um, dispossession by another group, right? So um, if you have whatever group in um, a colonized place talking about we are people or we are a group of people, we deserve this land, this land is ours, et cetera, et cetera. It's often in response to people trying to dispossess them or move them off of that right. place. And so it, when it comes to, for example, African-Americans and thinking about the importance of place um, for particular African-Americans, whether it's like small towns in the Midwest or whether it's, uh, you know, farming communities in the Southeast or whatever it might be, the attention to or the importance of land is really comes up because the land's been taken through some, you know, sort of unjust means or something like that. I mean, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely fair. Um, The only thing I would say is that, you know, and this is true for any kind of land that quote unquote land back is that if that land is returned within the structures of capitalism, then nothing much changes. Is that land still tied to uh, a city water supply? Is that land still tied to a polluting industrial manufacturing plant 10 miles away? Is that land still tied to all kinds of ways in which, say, schools are not accessible, broadband is not, and whatever. I mean, you can find any kind of issue. So... Again, it's the social forms under capitalism which have to be transformed, right? It's not enough just that the actual material thing is repossessed. Because if that's all that happens, 
then everything else that's been happening will continue to happen. So the same thing with Native indigenous land back movements. Just that land coming back is one step. The next step is to transform the society in which that land exists. Otherwise, you're still imbricated in this network of relations that ultimately are going to subjugate you. Because you're, again, still within the sovereign state. So whether it's an African-American community in Oklahoma getting land back or a Native community in Canada getting land back, you're still bound by the laws of the sovereign state, which at any moment can re-imprison you <laughs> and, and in various ways, which is why total transformation is necessary in terms of borders and states. So you talk about, or it seems like a lot of your thinking around borders are the contradictions that exist around borders. Do you kind of push back against this idea that they're finely tuned? And I like that because there's, I think there might be some hope there in mm-hmm. the contradictions. But I, I heard what you said about like climate change is maybe like a moment for us because of the way that climate change unfolds, borders don't matter. And I was thinking similarly, like maybe we could argue the similar pieces around like the coronavirus pandemic, but <laughs> this is where I get hopeless mm-hmm. is that like when we see the response on like vaccine mm-hmm. access, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have an, we basically an apartheid system that that's playing out and those global governance institutions that are connected to the human rights regime that you named are basically, you know, because of intellectual property laws are keeping the resources in the global north, right? Right. And so even in the logic of pandemic, which we know from a public health sense, like we all are safer when we all Mm -hmm. are vaccinated, like everyone on the planet, right? Right. So even folks in the US are are safer when folks in sub-Saharan Africa are, are vaccinated. But even in that case, like we still have not moved resources, right? There's right. a big fight over this, this TRIPS waiver right. and the EU is holding it back. And so, I don't know, I want to feel hopeful, but then um, it's not happening. So, <laughs> so I don't know what, where, where do you see hope in term in the contradictions, particularly around migrant stuff? Yeah, that's a hard one, Amy. I mean, believe me, I'm not uh, jumping up and down with hope either. I'm, I was just following the desperate plight of the migrants who are now stuck with the border between Belarus and Poland who are being used as completely as pawns in the game between Belarus and the European Union. And already, you know, 10 to 15 people have died uh, in the forests uh, uh, because of the cold and God only knows what, what awaits them. So, so it, it is not at the moment a planet that affords us a lot of hope, but I do think that ultimately the contradictions in terms of living on a planet with finite resources and an economic system that is bent on relentless expansion, that this cannot hold, you know, I mean, in a sense, also that even in this country, we've seen recently that workers have started fighting back Mm -hmm. and striking and, and rebelling against working conditions. And at some point, people are seeing many more alliances between themselves than separations. I mean, it is to the interest of those in power to make sure that we live in terror of the other and that we are safe and secure uh, in our homes and those on the outside stay outside. But it's like a gated community. Ultimately, those gates will have to come down. 
it's not sustainable. A gated community too needs resources from the outside. As you say, the, the, the pandemic has enhanced all of the inequalities in our world, but it has also shown us that those inequalities are present and those who chose to ignore them now see them for what they are. And I think that, you know, whether it's public health or climate or labor, more and more, I think people are going to see that there is no sustainable way to live on this planet in little silos and cliques and uh, nation states surrounded by barbed wire. Eventually, those will be breached. You can put as much wire around your borders as you want, but desperation, you know, I mean, is the same reason people jump out of a building on fire. Even they know they might break their legs, even die. But when the fire becomes too intense, they jump. And uh, that desperation also leads to solidarity. That desperation also leads to communal work, a belief in the commons as the only sustainable way to live on this planet. So, you know, one, one hopes. Yeah. And people have to, I think we have to kind of find our collective agency to do that. It's not naturally just going to happen, right? right? Like because things get bad enough that will eventually things will fall. It's going to happen because people are going to oh, yeah. going to work yeah. for it and they're going to struggle for it. And that's why, you know, demystifying what exists as reality, this is not inevitable. This is not natural. Right. It's a social construction of reality. <laughs> right. So um, With big guns behind it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is part of the fear. That is part of the fear. It is. Kanishka, thank you so much for for sharing your work with us and um for talking with us about it. And I'm really excited for this book to come out for you to, I know you're just beginning it in some ways, but be done uh, next month. uh, I really love it. I mean, this idea of like migration and borders and, you know, nation states and race. I mean, it seems like this is such an important topic right now. And the way that you bring a kind of analysis, a material, a materialist analysis to these questions. Well, at the same time, you know, sort of, unflinchingly kind of like concerned with vulnerable people like you know your mentioning of these children at the border right i mean like that in some ways that's what's at stake right is like human life and and vulnerable human life and when yeah when all this stuff is happening around us and 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 these border regimes like we sometimes lose sight of the fact that the people that are suffering are you know very vulnerable people. Right. And these are all unnecessary deaths. They're unnecessary. Because right. um, if there was a proper way for someone to seek refuge, they would do it. But countries have made it impossible to do so. And in the case of the United States, they have made sure that migrants traverse the most uh, inhospitable landscape possible. Right. They have sealed all the areas which was possible to cross over and left some of the ones open, which are almost, uh, death is almost inevitable because uh, it's such a hostile place to cross. So these are planned, willful deaths that states are enacting on people. And this is why it's important. And this is why we have to change it. That's all there is to it. Thank you. You've been listening to In the Belly of the Beast.